You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. So I think that the interesting fact that I want to share is that if you originally asked me what do I want to do when I grow up, I wanted to be a teacher. My mom's an English teacher and I really love working with kids. So what I'm doing, I'm conducting some uh, cybersecurity courses for children and for my kids, you know, and their classes, giving some lectures. When I decide that, you know, I'm done with my cyber day to day job. Maybe it's time to go be a teacher. Welcome to Uni42's Threat Vector, where we share unique threat intelligence insights, new threat actor TTPs, and real world case studies. Uni42 has a global team of threat intelligence experts, incident responders, and proactive security consultants dedicated to safeguarding our digital world. I'm your host, David Moulton, Director of Thought Leadership at Unit 42. Today, we're going deep on threat hunting with Oded Awaskar. In addition to his role as a senior manager of threat hunting for our MDR team, Oded teaches cybersecurity classes for children. All right, Oded, let's hop right into it. Threat hunting and incident response. That's the topic that we're going to get into. And let's start with a definition. How do you define threat hunting? Threat hunting to me is thinking of an hypothesis coming up with some ways to find and to prove these hypotheses and then executing it and just deep diving into the leads that these hypotheses have generated for you. This is the ultimate definition for threat hunting to me. So if I'm picturing it, it's like a Sherlock movie. You've got this little bit of a clue, you've got a hypothesis or a a theory, and then you jump in and you find the different pieces that can prove or disprove what you think is a threat? That's actually a pretty good definition that I've never heard. I think that also if we're trying to use some analogies in here, I think what I like best about threat hunting is the fact that I'm able to try and think as, as the bad guy. You know, like I'm trying to wear the hat of the attacker and just try to see what would I do if I was, you know, like that employee who wants to do a bad thing to the company because I'm, I'm, I'm just not satisfied or I'm the threat actor and I just got into the environment or I have access of this. What would I do? And, and this is the cool part, right? I mean, you get to play the bad guy in a way in order to create those hypotheses. Oh, Ted, when, when you're working on something, do you ever have that, that period where you, you get a little bit stuck and then in the middle of the night, you wake up and you finally remember the name of that Van Halen song that you <laughs> used to mow lawns to, but except for like how to act like a criminal? Um, actually, first, if you ask me, I'm dreaming about work-related stuff way too much. Some of them are related to threat hunting. I mean, I think that a lot of the threat hunting ideas, and this is probably going to be kind of funny, have actually came up to me when I was taking a shower or I'm doing the dishes because this is the, you know, like the single, you know, time in the day 
that you don't have access to your phone, you don't have access to your Slack, you're not sitting in front of your computer, you're not getting any phone calls, and your mind kind of, you know, like ingests everything that you've did and then tries to work out the things that you have challenges with. And this is where all the creativity comes. You know, when I'm doing the dishes or I'm taking a shower. I'm reading uh, Schwarzenegger's book called Be Useful. And he has a whole section in there about letting your mind have space by going for a walk or going to the jacuzzi in his case. It makes me wonder, it makes me wonder, how did you get into threat hunting? It was a mix of a lot of things I did in my past, a lot of work-related things that I did in my past, a lot of roles that I've taken along the way. And when you're taking enough different roles, you have a general understanding on how does an organization look like because you did some system administration and you've done some networking administration and you know what these kind of you know roles look like. And then you switched into security. So you did some, I don't know, security research in um, trying to uh, clean some files when they need to go out of a specific environment. And then you switch to a UEBA kind of, uh, I would say, team leading. UEBA stands for um, User Entity Behavior Analysis. When you try to think of how does a standard user operating look like? Then later on, going to run a, a blue team. So when you take all of this and when you're coming from different types of things that you've did, then this entire, I don't know, knowledge that you've gathered throughout the years is being, you know, it is enabling you to come up with, I would say, weird hypothesis and then get into threat hunting. I mean, no, it makes sense to me. I mean, you're, you're talking about having range and different experiences that you draw on such that when you get into a place with an ambiguous problem and things that are constantly changing, you've got different pathways to go forward and ways to, to run your investigations. I would wonder, how does the role change from when you started to today? What are some of the big differences that you've observed? Today is very, very different from what it looks like. Like, let's, let's not even go too far back in the past. I mean, let's go five years back. When you look at threat hunting, traditional threat hunting were all about finding something that was probably running on-prem. On-prem meaning we have a company, we have our data center, we have our computers, servers, workstations, printers, cameras, whatever. But usually everything is within our span of control. I mean, we bought a server, we installed some software on it, and we own it in a way. Originally, when I was performing some threat hunting, I had visibility to everything that happens in the environment. But nowadays, I mean, with all the cloud, SaaS, all of those specific services that we are utilizing in our day-to-day tasks, which we do not own, we're buying services from a third-party company in order to get our mails, in order to store some files. And we don't have access to the actual platform. We only have access to some logs. And so first, everything becomes more vague. System logs, um, machine logs, software log. But nowadays, the logs can be very, very limited to only what the vendor allows me to see, which 
may create some problems when I'm trying to prove an hypothesis. That's on one hand. On the second hand, I have a lot of different products that I need to perform hunts on top of. There are tons of different SaaS applications that we're using, a lot of third-party vendors, cloud vendors. And that makes my job as a threat hunter that not only I need to create the hypothesis, but I constantly need to adapt myself to newly adapted products within my organization. And the specific changes that are made to these specific applications as they move towards, I don't know, upgrading their service or updating their software in a way. I want to shift into a question about incident response and how threat hunting is used during an IR. Can, Can you talk about that sort of high pressure, high stakes environment and where threat hunting's value really shows up? So... When I when an IR case is is being like launched and kicked off, I think that one of the best, one of the biggest sort of challenges that we have is we need to get the scoping right away, right? I mean, we're getting to an environment, the customer's telling us something, something bad has happened. Sometimes they know what happened, sometimes they don't. But for sure they don't know the entire scoping, like how far in the threat actor is actually is. How much grip does, do they have on the environment? I mean, is it too late in a way? I mean, do we have some time? How, many, how much time do we have to make sure that we don't have to burn the entire environment and build everything from scratch? Our main goal is to first understand exactly what are the assets that the threat actor, that the threat actor has managed to take control of. And we're using a lot of hypothesis and pre, uh, I would say, pre-written queries to help us with these type of questions. Like, when does when has this started? What is the scope? What are the assets that are affected? What are the users that are affected? And this helps not only us as a threat hunting and an incident response team, but it is also very very important to communicate to our customers, right? Because all they care about is how long is it going to be taking to make sure that the threat actor is out? And also, how long is it going to be taking us to getting back to full business, right? What should organizations be aware of before implementing a threat hunting program? Organizations that fully wants to adapt threat hunting first needs to be aware that the first thing that those threat hunters are going to be worrying about is access to all the logs. One thing that threat hunters are always going to be asking from their, I would say, managers is we, we want to have access to everything. Are you using a specific product? Great. Can, you, can we please get the logs? All right. Are these are the only logs that you can give us? Are you sure there are no more logs that we can get? The more logs that threat hunters can get, the bigger the problems that they can ask themselves and solve them using those logs. Once the access has been sorted to all the logs, you need to give them an appropriate platform for them to be querying those specific logs. Think about this. I mean, if you are an organization, you're like a small, medium business. And if you have like, I don't know, 5,000 endpoints, you probably have terabytes of data that is flowing every day to your log repository. And now you need to put someone, a threat hunter, on these logs, and they need to make sense out of it. But if you do not give them 
the right system to work with, a system that can enable them to create dashboards and create queries and save some queries and have the query return in a reasonable amount of time and not having them like wait 35, 45 minutes between each one of the queries. So those are the immediate things that you need to solve. It's a kind of maturity that when you're a customer and you want to be performing some threat hunts, you fully accept the fact that at some point, some threat actor or some attacker is going to be getting into your environment in one way or another. And by getting those threat hunters, you will be able to do one, one out of two things. Ideally, get those specific breaches in a way or loopholes in the system that would enable the attacker to get in on the first place based on those hunting queries that they're going to be running for you or make those threat hunters find that sophisticated threat after it is already leeching within your system. But Ted, it sounds like what you're describing is a team that is really comfortable with the entire haystack being dropped on them and being told to go find the needle. That's, that's exactly right. I mean, when you're a threat hunter, you have to be mentally ready for the fact that most of the leads that you're going to be pursuing is going to be leading to, towards a dead end. The amount of times that I was really, really excited about the lead because I thought, all right, there we go. This is the next threat actor that we find in the system. This is the next APT that we find. I know this is the one. And then when you're reviewing the results, you're like, all right, that's a false positive. So yeah. that's okay. I mean, and you have to accept that as, you know, as a professional, because this is your way to learn. I mean, making mistakes in a way, it's not really a mistake. It's, it's kind of a cliche, right? I mean, you're always being told that making a mistake is not bad. But on threat hunting, that, that's even more important because those iterations and more iterations that you're doing between cycles when you're researching a hypothesis is so important because you have to make a mistake in order to learn from that and improve for the next phase, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds like in software, fail fast and threat hunting, you know, uh, find your false positive fast and move to the next one. Let's let's talk about some of the limitations of threat hunting, maybe when it's not the right tactic or some of the areas where it's just really not the right approach. If you think about this, you know, to take on threat hunting, you'd have to be a mature security uh, adaptive client. I mean, you'd have to be aware, you'd have to have some people that are looking at the day-to-day -day tasks, the immediate things that needs to be handled before you worry about the unknown. I mean, if you think about this, this, there's that, you know, famous picture of that iceberg when you see like only the 10% of the iceberg appearing above water level and the 90% being hidden under level. So first you'd have to cover the 10%. You'd have to worry about the day-to-day. -day. And only after this has been done, try to scrape off and try to scratch the surface for the things that are unknown. So if you ask me what are the, the immediate limitations for organizations to implement threat hunting is, is maturity. You would have to understand that threat hunting are not going to be solving your immediate needs. They're not going to be solving your uh, computer that is infected by an infostealer. That's not their task. Their task is to find some interesting vectors that are going to be leading to a major incident. 
or maybe even better, help you find that sophisticated attacker that has managed to maybe even bypass this, your standard security controls. These are the tasks for the threat hunting team. Oted, when and why should organizations consider managed services like managed detection and response and managed threat hunting? I think that one of the biggest challenges that the entire security market is experiencing right now is being able to staff positions, right? I mean, when you're trying, when you're an organization and you're, you're, when you, and you're trying to staff a SOC team, security operations center team, you need, first, you need a lot of people. I mean, you need at least like seven to eight people to staff a 24-7, 365 shift, and you need some good people. So first, as an organization, how do I, found, how do I find this key talents? Because we know that key talents are hard to get. So you have to spend a lot of time on recruiting cycles. And then another problem comes up that when you recruit someone to be a tier one SOC analyst, you have to worry about their career. After a year or so, they're going to be looking into progressing to another kind of a job that they want to take. So you have to worry about their career and career development and different kinds of tasks that they should be doing. And that's hard. So, and with that, people is going to be leaving, you're going to have to recruit them again. Um, not to mention that if you're going to be creating at any point some threat hunters, then the problem even gets even worse because there are less qualified people to do some threat hunting job and it's going to be relatively hard getting the right talent to do these specific tasks. Again, with all the things considered in mind, those threat hunters also need to worry about their career development and they need to be challenged all the time, which is sometimes kind of hard when you are a small company. One of the biggest advantages that organizations um, can have when they decide to go with an external MDR and MGH service is the fact that we can get the best people out there. I mean, we are able to offer those people first um, variety of working on a lot of environments so they wouldn't have to work constantly on the same environment and being challenged with the same tasks over and over again, no, we have a very broad uh, visibility to whatever happens in the security market because we're monitoring a lot of customers and that offers a lot of challenge and diversity to our analysts, which makes them grow, which makes them learn, and they feel that this is great for their career. Um, the second thing that I'm able to do as a MDR vendor is to offer them to progress within their career. I have a very big team and they can move from tier one to tier two and constantly work up the ranks I will mention and worry about their career development. Um, so I think this is the immediate thing that we're able to offer our customers. Oded, how can MDR help? So that's a great question first. And it comes up a lot from prospects and customers. I mean, why do I need MDR? I mean, I'm a small company. Why the hell would a threat actor want to attack me? So if you've been following some security news recently and for the last few years, you're seeing that threat actors don't really care who they attack. They just, they're after anyone. Anyone that is prone to be attacked will be attacked at some point. 
So when you're going to be subscribed to the managed services team, the first thing that you're going to you're going to have you're going to have a 24/7 365 covering by an expert. That means that whenever something is triggered within your environment, you will have someone that is going to be looking on this specific thing that happened in your environment. And yes, they might not know the right answer. And that's okay because they are backed up by our entire team in order to make sure that even if they don't know how to handle this specific alert or incident that was raised, we will have the right person to come in and help you getting the right action in place as soon as possible. The customer can have a peace of mind and sleep well at night and that someone is always there for them to give them a heads up when something goes wrong. Oded, what should orgs look for in an MDR partner? When you're looking at an, an MDR partner, you need to be focusing on things like what is important for that MDR partner in terms of the monitor. That means that you're probably going to be meeting with the MDR partner and they're going to be explaining to you a lot of things about the things that they do. And you need to be looking for some key things and try to capture some key sentences or phrases from those specific conversations. Like automation. Automation is a big thing in the security operation world and MGR in particular. With the explosion of logs, there are a lot of incidents and a lot of alerts that are coming into each one of the security systems out there. And you need to make sure that your MDR partner knows how to handle them without the need to get more and more analysts all the time. You need to make sure that your MDR partner knows how to prioritize by developing some custom automation, by utilizing all the great technology in order to make sure that the people are going to be able to focus on what matters and what and keep prioritizing things that are coming in using some playbooks and smart logics that are going to be prioritizing. This is, this is really, really important. This is where I feel our edge is on. We're, we're really, really aimed towards having smart automation in place so our analysts wouldn't have to do the same things over and over again. What should orgs look for in an MDR partner when it comes to skills? <clears throat> you need to make sure that your MDR partner can take the best people in the market. That means that there's a ton of competition on top of talent. And a talent is something that is going to be very, very hard to acquire. And you, you have to understand that you as a customer, by the end of the day, is going to be fully protected by this specific MDR partner if they are able to get the best people in market. How much should you expect a partner to do beyond the investigation? You should be aiming for initial response to the very least. Things like isolating a machine, being able to stop malicious processes, pulling files for additional analysis is key. 
threat actors in particular are working faster than ever, you need to make sure that your MDR partner has all the rights and the technical ability to not only give you a heads up when something bad is happening, but also proactively perform some preventive measures within your environment to make sure that the attack doesn't progress anymore. So one of the topics that seems like it's got a lot of heat behind it right now is AI and ML. How do those technologies contribute to threat hunting? AI is probably going to be changing the world in a couple of years. And threat hunting is not different. And MDR is not different. I mean, the ability to take a machine that is constantly taking the same decisions over and over again and is not prone to any prejudice or anything else is going to be huge in the security, um, in the security world in general. I mean, if we are going to be able to harness um, the machine's capability in order to not only create the hypothesis for us, but also, you know, like do the iterations of creating the query, running it against the data set, reviewing the results and doing over and over again, and then only hand to us the end query and the leads that are considered by it to be a true positive, that's going to be huge in, in this specific world because essentially that means that threat hunting is going to be assisting AI and ML heavily in order to just feed to the machine the hypothesis and then the machine does everything on their own. I'm really, really excited about how threat hunting, security operation, MDR is going to be looking in let's say three years from now, I think we're probably going to see big changes in this environment. So following up on the, the thoughts that you have on AI and ML, how does the feature or bug of AI hallucination affect this? <laughs> so I think we're pretty far away from having like processes that are 100% AI driven. You're always going to have to have a person in the loop that overlooks on the entire process and making sure that things are still going in the right way after the AI has taken a different iteration on the same the same test. So, I mean, for the next couple of years, maybe a couple of years is a, is a little bit extreme, but we're still going to have to have always a human in the loop. So let's shift gears a little bit. What changes are you seeing in the threat landscape today? Circling back to AI. I mean, think about this. Like, Three years ago, maybe even two years ago, when ChatGPT wasn't a thing just yet, the real confident threat actors knew how to code, right? I mean, they would be able to come up with something they want to do in an environment and then use uh, a coding language in order to create something, an executable or a program that is going to be doing that specific action for them. And that required a skill. Right, required the threat actor to be familiar with things like coding and making sure that the coding is not um, detected by any antivirus and using some different techniques in order to hide it. So that was a skill that not all threat actors out there had. So they either had to not do what they were wanting to do or have them purchase something that someone else has coded for them. Nowadays, after you know, the GPT era and all the LLMs, the entry level for coding has become significantly lower. 
because you don't have to know coding anymore, right? You don't have to know C Sharp, Python, C, Java, Go. All you have to have is an access to a chatbot like ChatGPT or anything similar to that, or a local LLM that you're forming on your computer and just guide it on what you want to do with plain English. And that means that you have a coder that is working for you. And yes, they're not going to be right 100% of the time. But when you do enough iterations, that means that you have a coder that is going to be able to execute for you and write the code. And that lowers the bar for sophisticated attacks that are going to be getting into some organizations. Because you don't have to rely on existing code like you did in the past. You can develop your own custom code, which makes us, the attackers, our attack, sorry, which makes us, the defender's job, quite harder because this is going to be something new that you're facing rather than just ordinary programs that we saw in the past. So how are these challenges addressed with managed threat hunting services or other managed services? So in general, that's the name of the game, right? I mean, we've been adapting a lot throughout the last years. Like I've mentioned earlier, you constantly have to adapt. And this is just, it's not just an auto adoption. This is a big adoption. Uh, this is a big change that we need to do as uh, defenders in order to tackle this new era of AI-assisted attacks. Let's, let's call it AI-assisted attacks. Um, I think that one of the things that we should be considering maybe even a lot more is relying on anomalies. I mean, anomalies have been a thing a lot of the time. You know, when you see something new in the environment that has never popped up, it's always interesting to understand the root cause. But now more than ever, when I personally feel we cannot continue relying on uh, strict IOCs, indication of compromise, like hashes and domains, because those things are changing constantly, we'll have to switch to anomalies. What is unexpected in the environment? What, what, what is not happening rarely? And try to find out what is the root cause and then find out some specific software that is misbehaving or is new to the environment and then being able to flash out those newly coded programs that are doing something malicious in the environment. Let's get into our lightning round. Name a commonly underrated technique in threat hunting. One of my personal favorite things that I think we're not hunting for enough, the insider threat. The insider threat meaning that, you know, we're always trying to look and prevent from threat actors that are coming from the outside to run some havoc within our organization, which makes sense. But we're constantly forgetting about an employee that knowingly or unknowingly is doing something wrong with the data that they have access to. Name your favorite language to write queries. <laughs> um, it was SQL. Funny enough, I used to... Uh, deal a lot with SQL, so I'll, I'll mention SQL. What's a common misperception about threat hunting and MDR? If I have threat hunting and MDR, they can find everything out there, including zero days and all the things, and I don't need to invest anymore in anything that is related to security. True or false? Threat hunters are only looking at APTs. False. Hopefully false. 
So you'd think uh, Vuln's weakness, overall hygiene, those sorts of things are also in the, the scope. I, I, I really hope so, because when you look at APT solely, you have to understand that APTs are rare, right? It's going to be very, very hard for a specific threat hunter to identify an APT that is currently attacking one of their customers or even their own organization. Um, so I think that if a threat hunter is solely going to be focusing on APT, they need to have a very large amount of customers they're working on or a very large data set in order to find what they're looking for, or their job is going to be really, really frustrating because they're not going to find an APT. The APTs are the rarest of the Pokemon cards. Final lightning round question for you. Do threat hunters have a favorite method for conducting hunts? Everyone is going to say something different. For me, if you ask me, um, my favorite method is putting the bad guy hat on, trying to be the bad employee who tries to impact the organization and think like, all right, what would I do? And then, you know, like take off that hat and switch to, all right, now that I know what am I looking for, let's go for the queries that I need to execute on top of that. Oded, wrap it up for us, for our listeners. What's the most important thing that you want them to remember from this conversation? I want you to remember that threat hunting is an art. And when you're conducting threat hunts, most of the times it's not going to be yielding into some very interesting or outstanding results. It's not. Most of the work is finding a needle in the haystack and finding that needle takes time. So when you speak to your threat hunting team and your managed threat hunting team, don't always try to focus on what are the outstanding things that they have found. Because sometimes when they find the small, so to speak, things, those are the actual things that are going to be eliminating the outstanding thing from reaching to your environment. Oded, this conversation has been really rich for me. I hope for our listening audience, it has been as well. Thanks for joining me today on Threat Factor. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. If you're interested to learn more about Uni42's world-renowned threat hunters, I've included links in our show notes. In the meantime, stay secure, stay vigilant, Goodbye for now.